0: Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate podcast. Our guest today is principal and co-founder of Hilldress Advisors, David Shorenstein. David, it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you again for doing this. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Before we talk business, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So where are you from and why did you get into commercial real estate? Uh, I grew up
1: in Manhattan on the Upper East Side um, in a rent-regulated apartment in a rent-regulated building, obviously. And um, actually learned uh, about real estate through living through a rent-regulated building, what it was like to uh, get approached to be bought out, what it was like for uh, the landlord to investigate Mm. uh, my parents or myself as actually living in the apartment or how much money they were making every year, make sure they were conforming with the rules. So um, I didn't even know that was the whole point of – of um, what someone actually hired me to do at a young age was to look into voter registrations Mm -hmm. of, of the tenants of the building of where people lived. So uh, that really was probably my first exposure into real estate. You know, I didn't have any immediate family in, in the business. Um, But uh, went to NYU uh, Stern for undergraduate and uh, got a degree in finance and there was one real estate class um, for undergraduates. Uh, learning about modeling, valuation. Um, I really just loved the professor, what he was um, talking about. And um, and then just uh, once I was graduating, it was really – I thought I was more bred for like a sales uh, role in my life, and I knew a lot of salespeople made a lot mm, of money because okay. I always wanted to make a lot of money, not growing up with a lot of money. So um, – you know, that really led me towards a real estate or sales. It was either pharmaceutical sales or real estate sales because mm. uh, I probably wasn't going to get a, one of the big investment banking jobs, which, um, you know, if I, there were 400 graduates my year, there were maybe 30 or 40 investment banking jobs. Mm. There was only really one big time real estate job at the time, which went to a friend of mine that grew up in the business. Mm. So uh, that's when I. Started the business, working for um, a landlord, Understood. making very little money.
0: And so, what do you think you'd be doing career-wise if not commercial real estate?
1: Um, I'd probably be doing something in the in the sales world. So whether you know, sales. yeah, I don't know if it would have been pharmaceutical sales, but it could have been. You know, at the time there was still stock brokerage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe I would have gotten into sales and trading, or um, I'm sure I would have ended up starting some sort of uh,
0: some business. Got it. And um, so after graduating from NYU Stern in 2003, um, you had a certain skill set in finance. So walk us through how you apply this skill set to your career today. I mean, the skill set in finance, uh, most
1: a lot of the skills are used, um, you know, just being very quick and good with numbers, you know, basic numbers, um, knowing how to read spreadsheets, uh, knowing how to, you know, value things based on return. Uh, those are a lot of the similar skill sets, Understood. you know, quick thinking math skills.
0: Okay. And um, I want to understand where you first um, developed your sense of business. So if you had to think back to the first time you remember selling something, what comes to mind?
1: Uh, I remember um, when I was probably about 10 years old selling uh, candy on the school bus. Okay. Uh, and I remember selling someone a few pieces of candy for like $20, and $20 right. was like a lot of money to like a 10-year-old right. at the time. So... Um, I remember that and getting in trouble for that. But I was always a collector. You know, I always collected autographs. I collected uh, sports memorabilia. I collected comic books, baseball cards. I would always be trading cards. uh, You know, so that, I think that gave me also the mindset of today. You know, I collect buildings. I collect art. So I just keep collecting and I collect memorabilia. So that kind of, that passion for, Collecting things at a young age gave me the passion for collecting.
0: Amazing. Okay, understood. And I watched an interview where you said that um, you taught yourself the real estate business towards the tail end of college. So how did you go about this and what resources uh, like the Massey Knackle setups did you use?
1: Um, So when I graduated, there were some big brokerages and what they would do is they would put the setups uh, online of all the properties they were selling. So it was a lot of... uh, information out there. This is when the internet, I guess, started getting very, very big. And I would just look at these setups over and over and and why these buildings were worth what they were worth, mm-hmm. different locations, what the rents people were paying. So really just looking at all these, all these deals over and over and over. And I would even call these brokers and probably ask the most ridiculous questions. Right. I didn't know what I was talking about, but I was just... Trying to slap things together, right? You know, trying to sell to friends in college. Like, say here, look at this building. Look at this building. I had no idea what I was doing. Right. So, really, just just looking at these things over and over and, and reading. Right. You know, I, I still read a tremendous amount, and um, that's how I
0: taught it to myself. Right. So you would read these as a perspective of a buyer to better understand what a buyer would be looking for, and you would call these people to see. You know, in in the case that where I would be a buyer, what questions would I ask?
1: Right, exactly. Or I would try to take the setup and show it to my friend, thinking he would just buy this. When right. he said, "Oh, we, my family owns buildings," uh-huh. and I would think this is this is easy. You know, right. I just show him this, and then he'll buy it, and then I'll get paid half the commission. It's never that easy. Right. right. That never worked.
0: Okay. And uh, what was your first deal that you closed as an investment sales broker?
1: Um, I remember it was 2201, uh, Amsterdam Avenue, Amsterdam Avenue. I was fortunate. Um, when I left working for this landlord, I got fired after a month cause I was, wanted to put deals together. Okay. I started working for another, uh, brokerage where the senior person who ran the, um, the division saw something in me as a, you know, 22, 23 year old and, and knew I was obviously very industrious, smart, hardworking. Mm-hmm basically put me on a a listing that his uh, family friend wanted to sell this building. Mm. And we had no idea what he was doing because even him, he was 10 years older. He never sold the building before. I never sold the building before. So um, at the end of the day, uh, I came up with an idea since I didn't know how to find buyers at that time. was call up another brokerage and that's how I sold it.
0: Understood. Got
1: it. (laughs) So I ended up... Selling it but not finding the buyer, okay. But we still got paid. I don't know, it was probably a couple hundred thousand. Okay, he probably great. gave me like fifty thousand. And at that time of my life, that was a, 23 years old, it great, 22 right? 23 years old. So a lot of money, great, it was a great accomplishment.
0: And what have you learned about yourself since you've closed your first deal in the last
1: 20 years? Yeah, um, you know, it's the same type of skill sets that I was doing back then. You know, they used to call. I mean, the hurricane and just high energy, you know, never give up attitude, you know, you just just keep pounding away at, at certain things, Amazing. you know, being that nudgy person.
0: Okay, great. And um, so walk us through the mission of Hildreth. Uh, what's your long-term vision for this company?
1: Um, Hildreth, at the, in the last uh, four years, I mean, we've grown uh, tremendously, um, you know, we're probably over 200 million in um assets right now mm-hmm. you know we started with zero assets right. in 2018 um, you know now we're getting into a bunch of different verticals um, you know a debt platform uh, growing the opportunity zone platform which we became the largest owner in downtown Riverhead mm-hmm. uh, which is all through opportunity zones um, operating businesses laundromats. Great. Uh, other growth We're in Los Angeles we bought a few buildings mm-hmm. and now we're uh, working on our first deal in Florida which I, I always say like we're the last people to make money in Florida but we're finally getting there yeah and uh, we keep growing we're in the marina business we're closing on our um, first marina for 14 million dollars mm-hmm. in Montauk and uh, we just secured another contract to buy another marina so we're gonna try to build out a very big uh, marina business. Mm-hmm. As well. Um, So we've got our hands in a lot of different uh, pots.
0: That's very interesting. And so for each different pot that you kind of have, do you have different investors that are kind of tailored with their skill sets? Or do you have a general group that you do everything with?
1: Um, There's some crossover, but there's a certain set of investors we have that like our cash-flowing shopping centers. Then we have our opportunity zone fund investors that like the, the tax treatment, and then marine investors are a completely separate type of investor. Got it.
0: So you match each investor with, with those right. preferences. Right. We have
1: to, And then we have New York City. Uh, we did a New York City fund in 2019. Mm-hmm. We bought nine buildings. So those are different investors. And when we do, you know, we're still trying to do New York City. It's very hard right now. Mm-hmm. That's why we're in all these other um, areas. You know, that's probably a different group
0: of investor. Understood. And how can someone, let's say they just graduated college, how can they um, make a name for themselves if they don't have a track record?
1: Um, well, usually if they don't have a track record, most people can't go out and start buying. Right. They're going to have to work as an acquisitions person. Okay. So okay. right now I have uh, eight acquisitions people that all are work for Hildreth, mm-hmm. um, working in the different submarkets, and they all are making names for themselves in the acquisition world. Right. And uh, usually after the first few deals, they either want to – Come into the deal somehow and learn from the operations Mm -hmm. side or we give them some uh, upside in the deal. So that's really the way as a young person to build your equity is working at a firm, hustling, bringing in deals and building your equity that way. And then if you get to a certain point of being able to bring in outside capital, then then you you can can really bring. Value to the organization by doing that, so then the organization can grow.
0: Understood. So starting out, you really should go under somebody else's wing who knows what they're doing and can guide you through. What, Whether what
1: that's brokerage, learning the business that way, right. which I think people should do even before going to acquisitions. Right. Try to do the brokerage thing. Right now, I think most brokerages are contracting. Right. There's not as many deals going around, so um, you got to find the right situation.
0: Right. So you would say the ideal path to getting to that point of being an asset manager is to start off brokering, then go into acquisitions, then go into starting your own company. Right.
1: And a lot of people can't go into brokering because there's no salary from day one. So they have to go into acquisitions. Yeah. So they can either get a salary or some sort of hybrid. Right. And learn the business. One of the two ways to learn the business. Understood. You know.
0: And as far as institutional capital, how do you kind of attract and partner with institutional capital?
1: Um, we only work with the hand a couple of uh, quasi quasi institutional capitals, uh-huh. but uh, you know it goes through hundreds of phone calls of finding the right people and right. constant dialing for dollars and pitches and bringing in partners to right. bring in the institutional capital. It's constant merry-go-round of keep searching keep yeah. grinding so there's no uh, no easy answer
0: and so what do they look for that private investors often don't look for um
1: well they're all looking for the same thing and what we do is you know most of our deals are off market right we have our own uh, platform we have about a hundred thousand properties in mm-hmm. our database that we're actively um, canvassing for so okay. the deals that we do usually are deals that are below market or not known about so i think that's a good story that's why people want to invest with us we have a lot of repeat investors we have people that do want to invest um sometimes it's just like the terms don't make sense for us Mm -hmm. because they won't let us make enough money
0: right so you position to your to the institutional investors that you're kind of like an industry leader with access to off-market opportunities
1: yes and you know we have the track record right um, we have an audited track record that supports it. We've, we've had a number of uh, good sales over the last few years of mm-hmm. things that we bought and then right. repositioned, sold. So between the track record, um, other partners we worked with, you know, other investors that have been extremely happy. Right. Uh, we have reports written on our company from uh, law firms, due diligence reports. So you know, we're, we're, it's very
0: buttoned up. Amazing. And so what do you look for in an ideal capital partner? With your investments
1: um ideal capital partner you know people that will just understand what we're doing understand the value that we're bringing right. um understand you know we're not going to be able to sell the building in a day and and make money mm-hmm. at, at least in this this environment right um understand if we have to put more money in that it's uh, it, it these things happen so um You know, just people that want to grow. Right. You know, people. We don't want to look for people that were just going to do one. Like I said, most of our partners now are all repeat. Are repeat. Um. You know, they're they're very happy
0: and they tell others. Great, amazing. And how did you leverage rejection from your first few deals to kind of like reevaluate your strategy for the deals moving forward?
1: I mean, it's it's just the never give up mentality. I mean, uh, you know, there's deals, you lose you lose deals. You know, people say they don't invest. You can't take it personally. Right. You know, it's not about you as the individual. It's just something could be going on in their life at the time. Right. But uh, look, at the end of the day, if you sign the contract and you're hard, you got to close the deal. So you're going to have to find it. Right. So you're going to have to keep going until, until you get it. Otherwise, you're just going to lose your deposit.
0: Right. Yeah. Keep pushing. Yeah.
1: You know, which is never, ha- luckily, it's never happened to me.
0: Great um and let's say somebody watching this right now works in acquisitions what are some aspects of the building that needs to be understood beyond the numbers
1: um you know something that i've uh, learned obviously nothing nothing always goes perfect but you got to really go into the building right and uh you know try to look behind the walls if possible right. cuz that's where cost overruns can happen and you, know, you might put it one number down on paper but when I go might go up 30 40% during right. construction um you know talk to experts that's something I've also learned, you know, bring in more experts in mm-hmm. every aspect of the uh
0: of the process of buying a building. Understood. And so the numbers are not really everything. Like you, there are certain things that you need a personal a person to go, go in and inspect.
1: Absolutely. I'm I'm that's something I learned over buying hundreds of buildings. Mm-hmm. Um Get in there and get your hands dirty in there.
0: Okay, great. And I read a blog on your website where you mentioned that uh, the key to succeeding in this day and age is to find the right networking avenues. Uh, My question to you is how do you maintain these relationships and stay top of mind with people without being pushy?
1: Um, You know, the thing I'm doing that's something I think that separates me than most others. I'm always networking. I'm always meeting more people. I'm always asking for people to introduce me to other people. So my network just keeps growing really? and growing growing and uh which is something that i w- want to get more of that you're doing is social media right staying top of mind um i'm constantly adding to my email list and Great. i'm sending things out on a constant basis but uh and i'm going through my list of people who to contact for certain investments it's just hard work right a lot of hard a lot of
0: hard work would you say this business is like 80 percent relationship management and acquisition of man- relationships
1: um, well, that's why I also have a, a lot of acquisitions guys. Right. That's you know you can't be doing everything. Right. Um, so they are really in charge of acquisitions. I do some of it myself. Right. Um, but then I would say my role as the owner or co-owner of the company is relationship management. Mm-hmm. Got it. At
0: the end of the day. Okay. And as far as um, when you buy a building, what are some value add strategies that you employ that may be seen as unconventional or out of the box?
1: Unconventional or out-of-the-box? Let's see. Uh, You know, it could be, you know, once you sign the contract, trying to see what this thing is, see what the property is really worth out there, talking to brokers, what could be sold for quickly, trying to get tenants in there before you close. Uh, I've signed, when I did the New York City fund, I was able to sign a number of retail leases, before closing, then your financing is able to okay. um, improve. Uh, unconventional things. A lot of the things are, uh, I would say, a standard. You yeah. know, or or working on lowering your taxes. I'm always working on figuring out how to lower taxes, whether it's in Long Island or here.
0: Okay, great, amazing. And as far as prop tech, what prop tech services do you use um, that you would recommend to other principals or other brokers?
1: Sure. Um, Appfolio I think is a uh, is a must. It's incredible uh-huh. for uh, property management yeah. and uh oversight of budgeting and how to pay bills. Yep. It's a, it's, a, it's incredible. Uh DealPath, I mean if you're doing multiple closings and deals at a time, which right. we're usually signing 3 to 4 contracts a month now, at, le- at least this month we're probably going to sign 6. Okay. Keeping all that flowing, getting the deals closed in a timely fashion. So, uh DealPath, CoStar obviously for Reporting, um, investor reporting software like an IMS or Juniper Square. Mm. We use IMS. So if you have a lot of investors, we probably have right now. It could be over 200 investors. Mm. Some of them small checks, big checks. Having it list their equity percentages, Mm. them to access their K ones, their documents. Having that is game changer. Wow! If you have a lot of investors, you need that.
0: Yeah. And what do you see? What do you see is not? What is? What is a gap that's not being filled? By any prop tech company right now that you kind of see potential for
1: um i mean i think i want to get learn more about the construction but now mm-hmm. i have a full-time construction manager okay. so we're talking about which services to use and i know i've read there's a bunch of them out there yeah, right now um, but i haven't really seen any other uh gaps lately i think okay. you know i've been using a bunch I've, I've i've used some and then i've stopped using some right. But uh, I'm, I'm happy with what we have right okay, now.
0: Okay, great. And how do you go about setting goals for yourself and for your company?
1: Well, I had all the acquisitions guys just put together their goals for the year. Okay. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's hard to stick to these goals yeah. because, you know, you go on vacation, things happen, then you get busy with active deals. So right. then you kind of fall off the canvassing platform. But... Um, you know, goals we set out this year as, as a company was really grow the marina business. That's something that is a unique, very hot mm-hmm. sector right, right. now. Um, you know, we've gotten into self-storage business. We're building two of them. We own one. So we got into that hot sector just as it's like now it's cooling off a little right. bit. I mean, it's still opportunity. Uh, goal is to really buy the first two or three buildings in Florida this year. Hmm. So we we have goals, and usually we end up achieving.
0: Great amazing okay and how do you make uh money in a down market
1: how do you make money in a down market um you could flip contracts in a down market okay uh, which is you know signing your option on a contract for more right. so that 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 can happen um you know you really got to work that much harder to find that one special deal that someone's going to pay more than what you're paying for especially when you're when you're flipping right um in the down market, you really also got to focus on the stuff that you do own and, and maximize what you do have. Mm-hmm. So that's the way you can make money is try to squeeze more rent or you know, work on your entitlements more or mm-hmm. work on lowering the taxes, cutting the expenses, maybe looking at switching insurance. Right. Really, uh, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to go buy more, obviously everyone wants to buy more, and yes. this is probably going to be a great time to buy. It was very slow for four months, but now it's really picking back up is to work on lowering your expenses. Mm. And that's what we did for the last like few months was working on lowering expenses operationally, great. maybe trying to hire staff that have been let go from other places. That's where you can make money right. is finding great talent for cheaper, which we've done.
0: Amazing. And as far as flipping contracts, how important is it to have a good kind of reliable lawyer that you can bring to these closing tables?
1: Uh, you need great lawyers, obviously. Um my business partner's father runs a, a major law firm, so we have lawyers at our disposal, which right. is a tremendous um, also advantage that I have. Okay. Um, from corporate, real estate, everything, but you know, working with a bunch of different lawyers and a lot of it's going to be
0: trial and error. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, as far as your investment strategy, um, how would you describe it changing over the years?
1: Um, well, really, I. Started buying a lot of rent regulated buildings, mm. uh, and that was the best business to be in where you could take a rent from $500 and get it up to $4,500. Yeah. So once that business started ending in 2015, 16, 17, yeah. you know, I really wanted to focus on cash flow. So I started with the workforce shopping centers mm. in Long Island, and then it morphed into COVID, which I was in the Hamptons. Right. So I started buying a lot of commercial buildings in the Hamptons, and that I, was, I also bought in Riverhead before that. Mm. That led me to the Opportunity Zone. So it's really like, you know, when one thing shuts down, Another one opens. thing can open. Yeah. Right. Sure. So you got to um, you got to really be open-minded because if I just stuck with New York City, even though I bought nine buildings in New York City between yeah. 2019 and 2020, which I think is going to turn out to be a tremendous uh, grand slam, mm-hmm. um, you got to just keep an open mind and right. just... Don't be all over the place. Right. Uh, most people can't be all over the place, but um,
0: and always keep your eye, eyes open for new opportunities and emerging markets and stuff like that.
1: Emerging markets, well, because when cities shut down, the whole Long Island became an emerging market, right? You know, so a lot of people were in Westchester. I just can't be in Westchester and Long Island right. very hard. Yeah, you yeah know, yeah. I'm closing on a property in New Jersey next week that just somehow came to my lap in Livingston. Okay. You know, great market. So
0: great. And as far as um, so. Buying in New York City, uh, which is one of the most competitive real estate markets in the world, um, how did you, as a principal, stand out to sellers and win a deal?
1: Um, closing quickly, doing what you say you're going to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, no contingencies, right. willing to put up 10% non-refundable on contract. I mean, during, I couldn't speak to the COVID era, um, you know, we were one of the few people who had a fund or money set aside. to close on these things. We closed on a couple of them cash and then refied out. So there was only a few people at the table at the time. Now, fast forward, the market, uh, when COVID happened, it crashed. Mm. Then it spiked back up. There was a short window to capitalize. And now when the interest rates came back up, now it's crashed again, so to speak. So it's very, there's not very little activity. So do you right always now. have
0: cash set aside for in, in case something bad goes down that where you can kind of capitalize on that?
1: Yeah, we have a fund um, for uh, like general partner funds okay. where we can go out and do a deal and then recapitalize later. Great. So uh, we can pretty much buy any building, but right now in New York City, people still want to sell at a 3% return, right. a 4% return, and you're borrowing at, Six, six or six and a half. Yeah. So you're losing money day one. That's why no buildings are selling. So right now, yeah, you will stand out. Any buyer will stand right. out right now if they're interested. Yeah. So, so the uh, prices
0: are really gonna have to come down in the next couple months. Right. Which
1: I think they're starting to. So if the buildings were worth twelve, fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred a foot, right. now you're seeing buildings thousand, eight hundred. Right. I mean, we can't even talk about rent regulated buildings because yeah. those are, you know, there's no value For there. Sure, yeah. No, no, I don't think anyone's touching and, that. And do you,
0: do you ever see, for rent-regulated buildings, uh, the law shifting in the favor of the landlords?
1: I, I don't know. I haven't really heard anything. Okay. Um, you know, I see buildings that were once worth 800, 900 a foot, now worth 300 foot. Right, yeah. If that. Yeah. Because they, they have to sell at six caps.
0: Okay. And as far as sellers that have kind of crazy pricing expectations, how do you bring them down to earth?
1: Yeah, same thing like a, a broker would. Okay. Um, Showing them the comps, comps, showing them the financing. I mean, most sellers know that the rates are at 6%, yep. 6 7%. But uh, it's really the people that are going to sell right now are the people that have to sell. Right, yeah. You know, there are partnership disputes. So yeah. we just signed a deal in the Hamptons with a partnership dispute, another shopping center in Long Island. Partnership dispute, uh, another one's a state sale, mm. the shopping center. Uh, another one, guys tired of managing it. Okay. Another guy's the marina we're buying, tired of managing it. Everyone has a story, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And so, I've seen you've done a good amount of deals in the Hamptons. Um, what would you say people often overlook about the Hamptons, and how are you able to seize good opportunities there? Um,
1: people I think are overlooking the rents they could actually get Mm -hmm. on some of these things. Uh, there's very few buyers out there Mm -hmm. um i'm actually now friendly with a lot of like tenants and i have a lot of inside market knowledge now we own i don't know apartment wise over 100 something apartments there so i have inside Mm -hmm. uh, market data on what you could really charge for the apartments most people don't have that many units they only own one or two buildings there's very few buyers there uh and coming with the new york city mentality out there and able to move quickly sign things do what you say you're going to do close quickly you can use like a start, blue ocean strategy. Yeah, exactly. So now I get like, I, I get bombarded with stuff. Even right. though mo, 99.99% of the stuff is very overpriced and not serious or people who just bought something right. want to resell it or there's no cash flow. So there's very very little deal volume. It's mm-hmm. like Manhattan. It's right. so
0: similar. So you were able to kind of um, bring your skill sets that you developed in Manhattan to the Hamptons and kind of leverage your, leverage your experience in that correct it's
1: okay. very very similar it's like it's really an extension of manhattan right at yeah. the end of the day because most you know the summer out there is just that's where everyone is exactly. it is manhattan
0: yeah definitely and um can you walk us through any of your investments outside of new york um give us one deal that went really well and one deal that didn't go as planned
1: um investments outside of new york like los angeles yeah. or whatnot um well in I bought buildings in Los Angeles in 2017, 2018 and uh, all those were successes, you know, where you know you would work tenants and mm-hmm. up the rents and sold all those buildings. And then lately the ones I just did were shopping centers, one I entitled for development in Los Angeles and sold it right for a very big profit. So nothing has really, I would say, not worked outside of New York. Some deals didn't work in New York right. <laughs> due to rent regulation and uh, market conditions. So I don't okay. know if you want to uh, where you want to go
0: with any of that. Um, and I also want to ask what's what's your what's been your biggest missed opportunity within New York City?
1: Um, missed opportunity in New York City. Um, there were a few offers, I guess, to take institutional capital maybe earlier on that I should mm. have explored more, but. You know, you develop a uh, you know a mindset that you don't really need anyone else when you're young. You got to learn these uh, lessons. Maybe it's not taking on institutional capital. Right. You know, there's always a few deals here or there that you could have made ten million dollars overnight. But if you didn't have the money anyway, you can't be upset. Right? Uh, there was a deal recently that I could have bought for five that just sold for ten in Manhattan, but. It is what it is. It it is what it is. You can't dance every dance. Yeah,
0: definitely. And what do you look for in a new hire, a new acquisitions person? You know, First
1: thing is someone that you can trust, someone you can rely on, Mm -hmm. someone that's a self-starter. You don't have to just feed them everything what to do. Uh, Someone not just going to take their salary and want to work a nine to five. Someone that's going to want to build and create something.
0: And what's an ideal background for someone that you want to hire for your acquisitions team?
1: Um, they could have worked in brokerage. Like, you know, my top guys now, they all worked at a brokerage. Okay. Uh, they all had that that training. They're young. Right. Worked at a brokerage. Had that sense of this is how we find the deal. Right. This is how we kind of underwrite. Then we teach them our style of underwriting because my uh, partner came from an institutional background. So he wants to teach them the institutional style right. of underwriting, which everyone learns. So they have to be capable of eventually learning that, which... Mm-hmm. You know, one of the guys came in. He didn't really know how to work on a spreadsheet. Now he does it at an institutional level. Right.
0: So, would you say that um, the brokerage kind of business and the acquisitions business are pretty much hand in hand? They're the same skill sets.
1: Very similar skill sets. I would. I would say. Okay. Um, I would say the acquisitions is more of an entrepreneurial because you have more free reign right. to go. Invest looking, at, looking at things. You know, you could take when you're a broker, you have to broker. They don't really want you buying properties. It's going to be very hard when you're labeled in that brokerage shop. When you're an acquisitions person, you're a principal. You can flip the contract. You can broker the deal. You can refer the deal to a brokerage firm Mm -hmm. and uh, make a fee that way with doing no work. uh, You can uh, buy the deal. You can help the firm raise money for the deal and get a piece of the deal. You can say, I'm going to work on the deal. So there's There's so many more ways to make money as an acquisitions person as opposed to a broker which is really one way
0: right yeah exactly and i re- i watched an interview where you said that um when you worked at Mark- Marcus markets milltrap you also were buying buildings on the side so how was that kind of affecting your um how were your investments affecting your job kind of
1: um it was it was very very hard but at the time which i don't think they allowed this past that time yeah, probably not this anymore. was 2007 yeah they allowed myself and my partner at the time to do that yeah you know they knew we were trying to buy buildings and more or less had one foot out the door right so it, yeah in the brokerage business that was dead it was an opportunity to buy so um it was very unique from that standpoint right. now now it's either i think they completely different yeah completely uh
0: different for sure and uh when you were coming up in the industry who were your kind of like your role models and people you looked up to
1: um well when I started it was really like the big brokerage firms, okay. the Easterns, the Masseys, the Bessons, those are the people I wanted to be like. The big brokers there, right. the Amadoshis and the Paul Massey, know, Bob Knackle. Paul Massey, Bob Knackle, guys making millions and millions of dollars right. um a year. And then as I started making my clients money, then you know, there were principles that I just
0: started to look up to Started to, to, to look that. up to okay. and said
1: that's that's what I want to be like. And eventually I ended up doing
0: that right great okay and i see you've done a whole lot of philanthropy and you kind of made it your mission to inspire and educate uh the next generation of young professionals how important is it to give back as an industry veteran and as a seasoned professional
1: um i think it's very important you know it's very rewarding when uh, a lot of people that were either worked with me in the past or they were my interns go on to do you know great big things you know there's a tremendous amount of people out there that that we've done deals with that have that have done uh major things in this business so that's amazing it's always a good feeling
0: and are there any um groups that you can kind of recommend to young professionals networking groups
1: um you know just try to go to everything okay you know there's there's so much stuff out there now with social media getting big like linkedin especially there's there's i mean look if i didn't uh wife and kids i i could be going out four nights a week networking yeah Right. Mm-hmm. Um. Or I didn't have if I was not at this stage of my career, I was younger. You could be going to so many things, meeting so many people. And that's Ryan Triddle's try to instill in the guys, you know, right. at least go to one, two things a week. Mm-hmm. You know, build your own network. Right. You know, because some of these things, you'll have these relationships for 20 years. Some you won't. But, you know, you just keep going. better take that shot. Yeah, exactly.
0: For sure. And David, I have my final question to wrap it up. Um, what advice would you give your 22-year-old self about life, business, and relationships?
1: You know, it goes back to the relationships. You know, value uh, relationships. Okay. Don't go for every last dollar. I think that's, like, more of, like, young person mentality. You know, something like the early 20s, you know, like, this is not, you know, don't make it, like, the last deal you're going to do with that yeah. person. Think of it as a growth perspective. But when you have nothing and, you know, you basically you think, like, that's going to be the last deal you ever do. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes the short-sighted mentality, you know, that it's really much longer game. Like I said, now most of my investors are repeats. Mm -hmm. Sellers, if they own more than one property, don't sign the contract and then beat them down on the price and then don't think they have something else to sell you. You know, build the relationship with them because you don't know what they're going to say about you. But that was something, you know, that I would say back then in the 20s or the other business, you know, just like, it's not the only. It's not your last deal. Right. Let's put it that way. So,
0: as a young person, it's kind of good to uh, put the profit aside and think more about the person and the and the relationship that you're building.
1: Exactly. Like now, when we bring bring in so many different partners and yeah. things and share and employees and give them piece of the business, this and that, as opposed to, you know, thinking that this is the end right. or this is the the last deal, and try to really build those relationships um
0: understood more. okay great david this has been super valuable i really appreciate appreciate you doing this again and there's so much value that young professionals watching this can gain and apply to their careers moving forward thanks again welcome great <laughs>